0: broadcasting around the world around the world you're listening to the Mike drop club hosted by douglas hamondichet message received message received you do not need to know what you need what you need just engage with the podcast feed just engage with the don't just live life, make life boom.
1: Hi, right, guys doing out there? It's Douglas Hammond D. Shea with another episode of the Mic Drop Club. Today I am blessed, I'm very, very fortunate to have in the house Philip Cox-Hind, who is a change implementation specialist. This is somebody that has a technique and approach to the management of change that is really, really close to my heart. His approach is unique in the sense that it's not primarily business focused. It focuses on the humanistic side of change, which impacts on the business. So without no further ado, I, I do I like to welcome Philip to the show. Philip, how are you doing? I'm um, well, thank you, Douglas. Good, 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 good. How are things in your area? The sun is shining in my window. So
2: how are things in your end? The sun is shining outside. It's rather beautiful. Um, And it's a nice compliment to lockdown, I think. Almost.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the lockdown is having its effect. I think they say it takes 60 days to form a new habit. And um, I don't think people are really knuckled down to this new norm. And as the soon as they get to understand it, it's going to be turned on its head again. So it is one whereby we do welcome the sunshine. That vitamin D, if you can get outside and, you know, bask yourself in some sun, go ahead and do that. Obviously, um, observing, you know, the social distancing, you got a back garden, you're fortunate, go in the back garden and, you know, knock, knock, knock yourself out with the sun, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, I was fortunate enough to reach out. And this, again, is about the power of connecting, um, the power of putting your intent out there across social media. Never has there been a time whereby you can reach out to people and get engagement. I would have never thought um, a, a, a cursory view over LinkedIn, where I brought a, a conversation like we're having right now with Philip, I was very, very fortunate. I was looking out for people of like minds in terms of the whole change and transformation, which we talk a lot about, particularly within the NHS, which is close to my heart. Something I do as a chief clinical Informa- chief clinical information officer. However, meeting people that um, have an approach to change that. I think has been greatly um, underplayed and undervalued and never has there been a time whereby we really need to take a look at the human side of change, the behaviours. You know, how are people adapting? Um, Are they going to be still using your products after after you go live, as it were? What is happening to them when they're going through that change process? We don't seem to have a big body of work when you look at typical software companies, in particular, they will tell you that their onboarding process is excellent. They've had X amount of people go live. However, those experiences are very um, rarely in-depthly reviewed. So, I want Philip to share some light on his approach, his techniques to getting his um, changing the mindset really. And it starts for myself, and I'm going to be a bit very selfish. the whole project management realm type thing when a project is starting ensuring you get the right sort of people to the table so philip a bit of background
2: how you been i've been well um and ups and downs and i think it's really important within this whole new experience You talked about acquiring a new habit pattern Um, It happens between 28 to 30 days and 60 days plus, depending on the degree of change. So the neurons in the brain connect. If you do something differently, about 10 minutes every day for 28, 30 days, that's the minimum it takes for a new habit pattern to take place. And um, there is so much uncertainty within the COVID lockdown that I think people are finding it difficult To acquire a new habit pattern because we don't see an end point. And I think that is so critical when it comes to change. I think from a human point of view, we're a curious mixture as human beings. On the one hand, we are by definition, look at how successful we've been in terms of colonization. Yeah. The most successful planet on the species. And you know, think where we can eat what we can eat rather, Um, where we can live in terms of temperature differentials around the planet. Mm -hmm. We're extraordinarily adaptive. So we can, on the one hand, really embrace change, but on the other hand, change produces adrenaline and other chemicals from the brain, which pumps around the body, which is the flight or fight mechanism, which we all intellectually understand nowadays. Mm But the effects to which every single thought we have, and we have between 20 and 30,000 thoughts a day, every thought produces a bit of chemical pumped around the body. Wow. So wow. our breathing wow. changes, our heart rate changes, mm-hmm. our musculature changes. And that all subconsciously, if we're not aware of it, prepares us to run away or fight it. Yeah. And so one of the fundamentals with any kind of change is to understand the human beings have that mechanism going on.
1: Yeah. And I, and, and that, that is so, so true. I see it in a lot of um, coaching sessions. I do a lot of transformational workshops. I do with clinicians. Um, you get them around the room and you can literally look at the crock brains. They're all yeah. there looking <laughs> like, Oh my God, how long is this going to last for? I hope it's yeah. not going to ask me to speak. And my skills gonna be compromised. So, talking to that croc brain, that that um the ancient part of the psyche, yeah. it is it, is difficult, but it's one that you need to acknowledge. It is happening. A lot of people don't know how to still address it.
2: Yeah, I, the, the phrase that I evolved over over years in working in companies the last thirty years uh, to bring about change. Um, which kind of forms the, the title of my, my latest book uh, called Mindfulness and the Art of Change by Choice. And that phrase, change by choice, I remember working with uh, a great teacher of mine from a kind of Buddhist background, not a practicing Buddhist, but Buddhist sensibility. And uh, she said to me years ago, with every, within every apparent, no-choice situation, mm. there's always a choice. There's always a choice. And and the trick is to find it. And it's often to do, and I think it'll always boil down to an emotional choice. So I'm living my life and and suddenly someone, something, an external force presents change. You know, you gotta do it differently. You gotta you gotta go into lockdown, you gotta change this process at work, you've gotta change the way you live with your partner. change and stuff that we haven't chosen yeah you know it's bad enough dealing with change i have chosen if everyone's ever moved house you know that's that's a stressful piece of change but we chose that and it's still stressful yeah so when it comes to something that's imposed on us where do we find the choices and the choice lies in developing a, a mental attitude an emotional attitude to noticing the reactions, because you're going to have them, no matter how enlightened or transformed we think we are. (laughs) We all have reactions. You know, you push me, I want to push you back or run away. Someone cuts me up on the motorway, I want to cut them up or or pull back or, or whatever. But then the beauty of being human is that we do have this thing called reflective consciousness. We can notice our reactions, may not be at the time. Now, I still react... And then I notice. Yes. Yes. And then that allows me to have some choices. That gives me, when I step back and notice my reactions, then I have an ability, at least, to respond. And I think the choices is increasing our ability to notice our reflections and then increasing our ability to respond and if I increase my ability to respond, I increase my response ability.
1: Okay. Response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can see the connection there. And one thing I want to pick up on there is about um, the element of control. Um, yeah. You just spoke about, the, the gave a good example about when you buy a house, you've, mm. you've chosen a house unless you've been evicted and forced, but you've, you've, you've chosen that, that property. Yeah. Um, there's a big element where I feel People struggle when they feel they're not in control of the choices, and they say, "Okay, yeah. I got these choices, but I don't like them." This whole yeah. like
0: yeah. scenario. Yeah.
1: Um, how what's your approach in that? And yeah, how, how what, what what do you think
2: about that? It's very important. Um, I think two aspects there uh, to start with: helping people become. This sounds like a, a, a contradiction, and in some ways, it is enabling people to explore feeling more comfortable with discomfort more yeah. comfortable with discomfort comfortable discomfort so anybody who's ever got been a runner or gone to the gym or done any kind of exciting experience that hopefully makes you feel fit or raises your endorphin level will probably even putting on your running shoes. I was a runner for three years, and I never enjoyed putting on my running shoes because my croc brain was saying, this is going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. what you're doing this for, you're never going to be fast, you're going to sweat, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Nike actually did it well when they came up with their slogan, feel the fear and do it anyway. Yeah. And then became reduced to just do it. Yes just do it. Mm. And so we can train our brain to discern between discomfort that will actually be bad for us and discomfort that's just our protective mind saying this is going to be uncomfortable. And us deciding, us deciding the kind of true who we are deciding, well, this discomfort is worth going through because the reward are going to be there. So that's the first point. Mm, The other point when it comes to change by imposition or change by choice, particularly if it's in a workplace setting, is a word that I think is really overused but rarely understood. And that word is engagement. Engagement. Um, We developed a methodology in, in my company called Radical engagement it's a bit of a I like box. that no I like that a lot no, I like really? that
1: I know I'm, I'm, I'm keen what? what's that tell me tell me what do you know <laughs> yeah. yeah I do you know what my eyes lit up because that's that's the word that I actually got on my list of 10 favourite words it's radical okay I love so, that word, You're just what, being what, what, butchered what, by the media.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So if I'm talking to a CEO or, or, or a, a decision maker about a change project, you know, they, they want to bring about change, they've got objectives to do it, blah, 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 blah. And they say, of course, engagement's really important, engagement's really important. But I know they're not prepared to do the kind of engagement I think is important. And so I'll often, without any warning, switch subjects. And I'll be looking at one of them in the room. and One of them will have a wedding ring on. Without any warning, I'll switch subjects by saying, uh, by the way, are, are, are you married? And they look at me as I've gone a bit crazy, you know. And they, have you, yeah, mm. with a kind of what to do with you, pal, <laughs> look. You <know? laughs> and I'll, I'll smile. Sometimes I'll say, if they're really looking weird, they're out there, play along with me. So, um, you, you know I mean? I can. Mm. And um, did you get engaged to be married? Uh, yeah okay, um, how long was your engagement? Oh, uh, 18 months, two years. And they're still looking really weird at by oh, this point. Yeah. And I go, okay, so engagement for you was really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did you do that? Bit of a PowerPoint, was it? A few emails, bit of an away day. <laughs> and, of course, slowly, yeah. the joining is yeah. It's the same word. Yeah. It's the same word, engagement. But you wouldn't. Propose to be married to your loved one by a a few emails on on an away day or a bit of a PowerPoint. It's a conversation, and it's a two-way, in-depth, trust-building conversation. And you both have to get the same emotional and intellectual understanding as each other if you're both to arrive at the altar at the same time. Excellent point. So when I say that. You know, they kind of get the point, but then they're going, well, you know, how we, how do we do this? And, and then I explain the methodology I've got, which is to instigate a much more in-depth, two-way conversation with what I call a critical mass of the workforce. If I was to guess, it's, it's at least a third. Um, on the premise that if you get a quarter or a third of the workforce really listened to, If you involve them in what they think needs to change, involve them in what they think the importance of the leadership's outcomes are, Mm -hmm. and they start to buy into them through discussion, then the second, third, or or, or second half of the company will tend to follow that that third, first quarter, or first third. and, And the remaining rump of resistance people will either at some point climb on board, or they'll leave. And great, because if you've given people every opportunity and you've got a kind of critical mass of the workforce uh, driving the change along with the leadership team and a, a small proportion still don't want to get involved, then with kindness and humanity, help them leave because that isn't the place they should be. Yeah, that that's the brutal truth of it. And
1: I, yeah. I just wanted to add to that in terms of the the collaborative engagement that you have, the the whole wedding engagement um, scenario is, yeah. is a perfect way to look at it because you look at your partner and you'd be saying, we communicate as equals. You marry each other on the basis of equal, equal standing, you know, yeah. two people um, from different backgrounds, maybe, but sharing a common goal. And um, yeah. too often when we are talking around engagement, particularly within large-scale digital transformation projects, the engagement is superficial. It is, we are the experts based upon our technology that we've developed, yeah? And you guys are going to use it. So that's not engagement on an equal footing. If you are a a, a propeller plane, you'd be banking heavily to one side and you would eventually crash. You need to have that equal footing above sides, recognizing that, Nurses, doctors, particularly around the changes in healthcare setting, they're equal to you. They might not have the technology, but they have a professional, academic, and practical um, experience of their scenario. They know what they need. Oh, they might not yeah. even know what they need, but they know how to deliver care. So that need that needs to be recognised and acknowledged in terms of if you're trying to implement software to people or clinicians, you know, because they're operating in a different environment, and you will never know the nuances where your software will actually operate unless you fully engage in that dialogue with the key people of
2: influence. I would say, yeah, absolutely, and of course, there is um, very obvious main difference between the wedding analogy and the workplace analogy there are many but the the, the overriding one is that uh, in the workplace you're paying people to do a job and therefore a lot of leaders are slightly wary of a a longer more fuller uh, dialogue process to gain engagement because some slightly backward thinking in my view leadership and but they are valid uh, will say, well, I'm paying them to do a job. I'm paying them to change. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I can remember a, g- a good example. So Arup, big civil engineering company, yep. uh, designed and built the Sydney Opera House, the Beijing Bird Nest Stadium. Wow, wow. wow. Frankfurt Airport. I mean, one of the biggest civil engineering companies in the world. 10,000 employees. And I did a change project with them, um, several years ago, and I was uh, brought into the company by the change management director. And often the <laughs> word change management was used purely within the IT uh, context. Yeah. So in another company, he would have been the CTO. Yeah. Yeah. But in Arab, he was the change management director because in their world, you bring about change through software change. Yeah. But here's the flaw. So, the global COO had had this vision of making the company more global, but global in terms of systems and process and, and homogenization, they already had a global presence, so they had a, an office and, and a, an MD of each um, sub-part of Arab, if you like, within most countries in the world. That he hadn't been able to get buy in from the MDs for software and process similarity. They all did their own thing. So the uh, change management director, the CTO, was uh, given the authority to bring all the MDs of all the different parts of the app together for a huge global IT conference at huge expense. And he took them through over five days all the benefits. Of uh, homogenizing systems and processes, and uh, enabling them to be global, I didn't ask them if it would benefit them, but you know that was obvious to everyone, wasn't it? And then they all went back to their own uh, countries. and did exactly what they'd always done before. <laughs> <laughs> so I was brought in, yeah, to talk to all these twenty five MDs. and my approach was to find out from them, what benefits would it be to you to have a global system? And it took a while, it took several months, but we eventually we found them. Mm-hmm. And then they started to push for the thing that they felt was previously being ran down their throat. Oh wow. They started to want it yeah. because they could see the benefit. Yeah. It didn't feel like an imposition anymore. It felt like
1: a choice. It's just changing that narrative. Being being bold enough to put your head above the parapet and listen to people's fears and concerns. Because again, change as I've seen it, um, people can be resistant to change because they don't know the outcome. As we we're, were having yeah. with this coronavirus thing, it's a good exercise. Yeah. The whole globe is going through that, um, and also they don't know their ability to manage the future state. What what would they need to manage the future state? So these are opportunities. I would say for companies to employ the right people. And I've, I've done a video about this quite a few weeks back now, talking about the wrong people and digital transformation. Yeah. Because quite honestly, they're talking about software change, um, process driven, heavily process driven, and not um, valuing their real engagement because it is a challenge. You are going to be shut down sometimes by listening people um, express that fear that they have. Yeah. Is It's it important because as you were saying at the beginning, there's an the energy. Every thought you have has, um, has a source of it and it has a response. And, yeah, totally. and not acknowledging that and not allowing that, um, that an, a protective environment where people can express um, thought that may be maybe not well crafted or thought out. But allowing that safe space, I think is very important. I rarely, rarely, rarely see that within a project plan. I see workshops all the time. We've got to get feedback, but the questions keep the response very narrow.
2: Yeah. And that's a very important point. Two things there. Um, The response is usually kept narrow because the writers of the questions are frightened to hear the truth. Yeah. And on the receiving end, if you're asked to fill in questions and you can feel that those questions are being restricted, we're very... Emotionally bright as people, and we can feel that we're pushed, being pushed down a particular road or a particular outcome. So my suggestion is not to do engagement by surveys. Or if you do do a survey, we did a survey years ago for Microsoft, and. Um, they said that they wanted to improve on the engagement they'd had in the previous year which they thought was very good. I said, oh, great, so what's very good look like for you? We said, oh, we had 50% of surveys returned last time. <laughs> I thought, really? 50%? Okay. okay. So I thought about this, and so what we did is we interviewed within Microsoft UK, there are only about 300 or 400 people then, this is 20 years ago, but we interviewed 60 people and we said, if you wanted a question to reflect what concerns you have, what questions would we ask?
1: Mm.
2: And we interviewed everybody for an hour. And we wrote down tons of notes. And we wrote the questions for the survey from the interviews.
0: Yeah.
2: And then the first question on the survey was, please read this survey in its entirety before you answer any question and then fill in what do you feel are the relevance of these questions to your day-to-day work? One, terrible, five, excellent. We got an average score of four. So they already bought into the questions. Yeah. And then the response rate, we think, as a result of that was 92%. Excellent. 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 It's not rocket science. If you... Ask people open-ended questions. You don't try and limit and hear everything.
1: Mm.
2: Then you've got more chance of people coming out with the truth. The second thing I'd say, which often goes wrong at any change project, is that because the leaders who decided that this project is important – have had time to think about it, debate it amongst themselves, argue sometimes even, before they eventually get to a consensus. They forget that all of that discussion, all of that argument, all of the ideas that didn't end up in the change outcome were important for everybody to get to that consensual endpoint. But then once they've got to that consensual endpoint, that objective, they expect everybody just to take it as ready. And I think one of the biggest uh, mistakes is that you start digital or process um, change groups with the assumption that everyone is bought into a common objective one, one one of my favorite phrases is common sense is rarely common yeah yeah because what is common sense to you Douglas may not be common sense to me and to assume that we've all got the same, Senses that are common, the same values, the same way of approaching an outcome, uh, is one of the biggest mistakes. So the whole notice of uh, of involvement of engagement um, needs to involve a degree of co-creation of the change objective.
1: Yeah, uh, that's 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 such a profound point that you're making there. That that um being involved in um, partnerships in creation is something that I think from an uptake point of view is very, very important. And for post-implementation, when people feel that they were involved in um, creating something or involved in that creative process, they take a lot more ownership of it. And I, was, I was just want to ask you again, in terms of these, these you just talked earlier on about um, engaging with the right sort of people you know you don't yeah. have to engage to everybody at the beginning you need to get those influential people to really really immerse themselves really really have their dialogue and the smaller population will will get get on board because of the the mass the mass I think yeah. that um, will do it. it's maybe 80-20% rule might fit in that as well how do you go about um, seeking out these people who might not be traditionally on a change management board there might not be Um, people who are highly visible, but they are are influential
2: in (laughs) companies. That's a a critical point. So um, as I said, as in the Microsoft survey example, but we don't very often do surveys now. We mainly do it through interviewing Um, uh, and interviewing with two broad questions. One question is, what works? The other one is, what would you change? So I keep repeating variations of those two questions in an hour long interview. What works? What do you love about this place? What would you enshrine? What do you talk about after a week's gone really, really well down, down the pub on a Friday night uh, or on a Zoom call? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then conversely, what would you change? What irritates you? Yeah. You know, What what knocks you? What, what do you think you're missing a trigger on? So, so that's the involvement. And the who we talk to is critical. What we found important is to, with the help of the leadership team, to select a representative cross-section of all aspects of the company. So from C-suite through middle management to shop floor to receptionist, from male-female to or ethnic group representations to so people who have been with the organisation a long time, people have been mid-time, people just joined. If we get the this, this, this selection of, of representation inclusive, if everyone is probably being uh, represented, the litmus test is that when all the interviewing has taken place, I and my colleagues then type up, You know, if we've interviewed 40, 50, 60 people for an hour long, we've got 60 hours worth of notes. And I get it all typed up. Sometimes I dictate it because it's fresh in my head. I have a double monitor. I put up all this stream of consciousness on one side. I take all the names out so I can't even see who said what. And I literally cut and paste the unchanged colloquial comments from the stream of consciousness into an emerging, what starts out as a blank document on the other side of me. Screen and I cut and paste them into clusters of similar comment. Yeah, and I may do that until I've got nothing left on the stream of consciousness side, they've all been clustered, and I may do that again. So they end up with six or seven or eight themes, but they're themes purely supported. And if somebody says, you know, to me, when the hell are we going to sort out so and so, and they may use an even stronger word than hell. That's what I write down. That's what I type up. So I don't sanitize it because there's something visceral and human about that that emotional language. I sometimes change the syntax so it's not obvious that Fred said this or Jane said that. And then those themes I type up no more than two pages for each theme. I let the theme title emerge, having read the colloquial comments within that theme. I might do a summary paragraph of the theme, but basically 90% of the words in that snapshot report, I call it, are the colloquial comments from the interviews. I then take the leadership team off site, and I only then give them a copy altogether, and then I read it out loud, theme by theme. And you get a few red faces. You get a few shuffles of discomfort in there. You get a few wow. But then, but the question I ask is, do you agree with it? Do you recognise this? Yes. I'm not talking about every comment. You know, you're going to get a few wacky comments. Do you get the point of the themes? Do you, you recognise what people are saying? And I've never done it without the people saying, "Yeah, I get it." And I've never done it without the themes chiming
1: mm.
2: with what the leadership team had already realized what we're trying to impose. Mm. Because then what I do is I, I've i only had it refused twice. I then do read-throughs with the entire company. Now that's very wow. interesting, Douglas, wow. wow. Because coming back to your original point, if it works, and I've never had it not, the people who weren't interviewed, if we've got the cross-section of people who were right, yeah. will say, you okay. know what? I could have said that. Yeah. I recognize that. Yeah, yeah. And when I say to them at the end of each theme, do, do you get it? They go, yeah. Yeah. And then I'm actually listening out for the next stage of the process. So what I've done, is I've raised awareness. Change happens by three stages. Raise awareness such that you may want to own it or be responsible for what's been raised. And if you own something, you're more likely to be accountable. for it to be measured for it so it's almost like I farmed the collective awareness I fed it back to the leadership team then fed it back to the company and for those who really get it they start putting their hands up or sending an email saying can I volunteer where appropriate to be part of the fix-it teams yeah yeah so they're offering themselves to be responsible for that which they helped identify, and i helped the leadership team come up with a range of interventions to address the change issues some of them can only be done by leadership that's what they're for but a whole slew of stuff can be changed by by working groups of volunteers and i coach those groups i coordinate all of the interventions but because you've got You know, a third of people, sometimes half the workforce involved in working groups, we only meet for an hour and a half once a week, for instance. They put recommendations together, they present them to the leadership team. Often, they're then invited to implement. Yeah, (laughs) you've actually got this full cycle of people being so involved, so engaged in both identifying the change but also in bringing it about. And we often produce a mind map of all the inven- interventions going on. In several companies, that mind maps become a screen set. And in each intervention, each bubble, if you like, mm. of stuff being done, you see the initials of the working group volunteers that are involved. And I was in a company a couple of uh, months ago um, where somebody, I was overhearing a conversation, it was brilliant, two people on a desk saying, when are we going to change this bloody process because it's it really, Annoying me. That was he would use a stronger word than that. Um, but we've got a process group, haven't we? And the other one said, "Yeah." I don't know. It looked on his screen. Hey, it's it's, um, it's Jamie and um, and Justin. The, the, their initials are on the process group. Hey, Justin, <laughs> how you doing with the process change group? Oh, really well. We should get recommendations to the, to the management team in three weeks' time. There you go, mate. Wow. And it was like magic. Wow. Do you know what? Change was being driven from the inside out, from the bottom yeah. up, as well as from the top. Yeah.
1: Exactly, and you did describe the process as um, simple. when When you when you break it down, like that that is simple. However, it is a very complex process that you are um, imparting on the listener it here. It is very, very po- com- complex. Um, I I've lived that 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 path whereby. Now I've come to realize, particularly within large, very large organizations, that power no longer sits at the top of hierarchical structures. That that is not where the power is. Anytime I'm involved in a change implementation project, I like to reach out to these small groups that are loosely connected, but have common um, themes and common goals in terms of trying to be productive, trying to be innovative. And then this is where what you were saying is so important in terms of the responsibility element. When we give these groups ownership, they get more responsible. Yeah. But responsible responsibility is there's two words there. There's respond and ability. A lot yeah. of times when I was a champion user volunteering to bring about change, I would disengage when by, I didn't have the ability to, to bring about that change. I wasn't given the tools, the power to, to make decisions. I wasn't given the right access to the right people. So it was almost like a token type of um, um thing you put in your CV. I was a champion user for this software product, but actually you had no ability to do anything. It was just like, you, yeah. we're going to go to you. This is what we want done. And can you make sure you impart what we said to your subordinates and stuff like that? It's not really the, the the true accountability, the true responsibility that you are talking about, that will lead to long lasting relationships between your your networks and whatever change you're implementing to that organisation. That's really
2: important. There's two two points in in that, Douglas. One is going back to. The three-stage process I briefly mentioned, awareness, responsibility, accountability. Um, there was another word like engagement that was a real flavour of the month a few years ago, and it's still used from time to time, and that's empowerment. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of stuff's been written about empowerment, and some of it isn't really true. If you break words down, I'm very dyslexic, and so I came into consulting... In my early 30s, um, and was a bit bamboozled by all this management speak. I remember being invited to a strategic strategy conference once. What on earth is that? (laughs) (laughs) uh, So I'd look at words and empowerment. um, M is to, to, to enable and power is from the French, pouvoir, the ability to do or act. Now, I can't get anybody else to do or act. I can provide the conditions. And I would suggest there are two major conditions that need to be in place. One is you need to offer and make sure that they actually have authority. The word author is within the word authority. Mm -hmm. Enable the person you're asking to take on a task or a project or a deliverable. Do they have the tools, the skills, the confidence to be the author, to be the authorship of? what they're taking on. And secondly, negotiate what they're being prepared to be measured for, to be accountable for. You only hold somebody's feet to the fire for something they've agreed to take on, knowing, believing that they can take it on. If you try and press somebody, this is often the downfalls of poor delegation. If you you dump on someone rather than delegate to someone, delegation should be choice-led. I'd like you to do so-and-so with the outcome of this within this time frame, are you able to do it? That's the question often missing. Are you prepared to do it? What resources might you need to do it? So I, I, I agree with you, for accountability to take place, you've got to have ownership, but you can only have ownership if people feel as though they can be the author of the outcome. Yeah. And the thing that kind of lubricates everything we're talking about from engagement to establishing accountability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is the word relationship. I worked with an American guy uh, for years and he used to come out with some of these really cheesy, um, I used to pull his leg about it, American expositions of words. And one of them was, have you got a relationship or a relation robot? Wow. A relationship or a of robot. Wow. So putting the cringe to one side, it kind of, it's interesting. So a rowboat, you know, a little rowing boat. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't take much to come capsize it. You can't go very far in it. Mm. It's very maneuverable, yeah. but it, it, it's not, it doesn't carry a lot of stuff. But a ship, you know, a big ocean going ship, it takes a long time to build. Uh, A lot of cooperation, can carry a lot of stuff, can be difficult to change course, so relationships can get stuck. But I think the key that has often been missing, although I think there's changes with, with the awareness around mental health particularly, that relationships for them to be real need to contain... Trust as an outcome, but trust is, is an outcome. You only get trust if I can slowly get to know you, such that I can possibly disagree with you, that I can have a different opinion to you, that I, I, I can say when you do something that upsets me without fear of you trampling on my feelings. You know, so if you take about a relationship and a, and a personal setting. Either an intimate relationship or with our kids or with friends, it's a two-way street. It, it Trust comes as a consequence of being real, of being vulnerable, yeah. of making mistakes, yeah. of, of celebrating our wins, but consolidating our loses, uh, of being there for each other when we mess up. Yeah. And my view on, on good managers, on, on human leaders, um, I'll tell you a quick story if you've got time. We have time. time. Okay, so um, a long time ago, before uh, sailors had GPS and radar and all that stuff, in old-time sailing boats, um, we had the sun, we had a sextant if we were lucky, but also particularly around really tricky waters, very shallow or dangerous waters, um, we had experience. I had experience of sailors who knew those particular waters. And it was, it was the dumb thing that captains wouldn't just say, Yeah, I'm the captain of the ship, I know everything. They would, they're going through a particular tricky piece of water, they would ask their crew, who knows these waters well? Who sailed in these waters more than I have? And the most experienced sailor for that water would often volunteer. And they would go to the front of the ship. Either lie down on the belly or look at the water below them, and they'd often have a depth gauge—very simple piece of string with a weight on the end of it—and they keep going down and and they you know depth gauge where they were going and call out commands to the captain. And this person, the most experienced, wouldn't necessarily be an officer; it could be the lowest of the low. They were—they had two massive qualities for the people on deck. They were trusted. You know, if they got it wrong and the ship got wrecked, everyone could die because very few sailors in those days could swim. So this was serious. So they had to have trust. The other thing is they had to, they had to know where they were going and how to get there. Clear direction, trust. Clear direction, trust. And at the bottom of the piece of string, their favourite weight because of its density was a piece of lead. And they were known as the leader. Wow. The leader. The the leader. The leader. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they weren't the high and mighty in that context. They weren't the captain. They weren't the guy telling you what to do. Yeah. They had the trust of the men and they knew where they were going. And all leaders need to build relationships. My God, yeah. Because it's through trust. You have to earn the right to lead. And you know if you've got good leadership because you've got choice-led followership. Yeah. And I think that yeah. I think that's a message that's been
1: so underplayed, indeed, de- not devalued, but not even known about, because my mind is just exploding now. It's just it's opened up a lot of our potential in terms of when i go back into the work environment, how I'm going to, um, um, implement new ways of of addressing challenges that we have for around change and management. So that is that. Wow. What can I say? That the whole thing about leadership there, the, 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 the lead, the lead that they're putting down, um, leadership is one of those qualities that I feel Prior to me talking to you, I had a conversation with one of my work colleagues about um uh we, we had we had this conversation about how we believe somebody is a good leader. Yeah. And, and we said, oh, uh, we came up to the conclusion that you must have passed the believability test. Yeah. So go back to your your analogy there. So the believability test is have you done this before? How many times have you done this before? Before you can take somebody's view, opinion. Or statement or facts as to being true. Because sometimes you are in a situation where nobody knows in that office what the hell they're talking about. But they know that change needs to be done. So I think they have been being able to um, inspire and allow that person to who can lead with the lead that comes from any background, from the lowest ranking to the top. And what I find amazing is within digital change transformation within the NHS a lot of people that are in senior positions came up through the ranks, yes. either, either as um, secretarial um, people, doing, and they were just, oh my God, I need to get this printed out. The doctor was talking to this admin clerk, and the admin clerk will fix the IT problem because the IT take time to come. But these people took the responsibility to resolve something, and then they moved themselves up and up the ranks, and they've forgotten that journey. Yeah. They've almost reached that that zenith and okay, I'm here now. And everyone below me, you're on your own as it were. Yeah. I think something about remembering your journey, which is very, very unique and should be used to drive and instead of having clicks for likes and followers, all that kind of stuff, having people that understand your journey and want to be part
2: of that as well. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's important to, to remind ourselves that, know, within all this talk of leadership and big change programs and uh, uh, creating engagement, you know, it can be easily uh, confusing or or, or an individual can be left feeling, well, that's all very fine and dandy, but what about just a little of me? You know, I'm I'm not a great influencer. I'm just part of the the crew. You know, where where does this leave me? And um, I, I think two things on that. To start with, we can all be relationship builders. You know, I, I, one of my most disliked uh, common use phrases is there's no I in team. You heard of that one? There's no I in team. I used to think, yeah, you, you can't spell mate because I always put an I in team. <laughs> I can get away with it because I'm dyslexic. Because um, no, no. Uh, If you get a task-based team, i.e. people forced together to get barrels over a stream or um, the workplace equivalent of that, i.e. we're all commonly coming together to do the common good, that's great if we assume, as I said earlier, everyone knows what the common good is. But if you get a team that comes together that is born out of relationships, what I call a relationship-based team, It may not be everybody, but if you've got a critical mass of people, say there's eight people in the team and four of them or three of them are a bit more conscious, they're a bit more sensitive to when Fred gets angry or when Rachel storms off upset or, or when this one has something to say but can't find the words, you know, if they're all got their awareness off themselves and trying to build relationships, not just between themselves and the other people, but between others within the team. If you've got relationship builders within a team, you're more likely to end up with a relationship-based team. And we can all do our little bit to uh, build relationships that are trustful. And even when I mess up, and I mess up like anyone else, can I reflect on my reactivity and go back in and apologize? Can I go back in and say, actually, you know, I think I've got that one wrong? So that's one thing. I think the other thing to say about leadership is that we can all, we can all be leaders. I can remember the story in in, in the opening of my book, I think, um, one of the facilitator teachers I had to f- help me facilitate big workshops and personal development seminars to 150, 200 people at a time, which I used to do in, in London. Um, my teacher and I were walking along the streets to a conference in London, um, and we're having some big philosophical debate about something, and I didn't know where I was going, and I was trying to keep up with her intellectually, as well as following through the back streets, and she crossed the road, so I followed her, and I was still trying to follow the arguments, And As we got to the other side, without breaking what she was saying, she bent down and picked up a ball of greasy chip papers, Fish and chip papers. Yeah. Carried on this philosophical discussion, and I was really distracted. By what was she just done? But then she crossed back onto the road we'd already been on and carried on talking. And at this point, I said, "Sorry, whoa, whoa, time out. turned yeah. out? Yeah, um, I, I can't. I'm, I'm lost. I'm losing it here. We, we went out of our way across the road, thinking that's what on our journey, but it was so you could pick up this this greasy ball of chip papers, and um, and I can't concentrate on that and this deep discussion. I said, what's just going on? She said, well, I noticed the part of my brain as I was talking to you about the philosophy, went off on one and blamed the little lab for pick, for dropping the, pap- the papers. Okay, And the reflective consciousness part of me kicked in and said, okay, so what do you want to do about it? Mm. Now I had some choices. I could actively blame the little lab. And some days I choose to do that. Mm. Or I could write to the council, and I've done that. And on this day, I decided to pick it up and stick it in the bin. That was my choice. choice. Change by choice. Yeah. And in that moment, she led me. She was she was role modelling leadership. Yeah. Um, You know, it it takes some in There's there's. um, I was on a Zoom call last week, and the guy. Uh, It was an interactive workshop, and it was like five hours long with breaks, so it was really intense. And he said a context at the beginning. He said, um, if you want to chime in, just hit the unmute button, or you can chat in the chat room. And, of course, what happened? (gasps) People defaulted to what felt safest, yeah, and everyone defaulted to the chat room. And then the moderator read out, what was in the chat room so everyone could hear it (laughs) because not everyone and I thought yeah if you set the context please don't use the chat room just unmute let's practice everyone unmuting the the button and then people feel you can do it and sometimes in a crowd it takes courage and it does to put your head above the parapet and pick up the chip papers or say something to a parent hitting their kid, I've done that.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. Was I right? I don't know. But did I have in that moment the courage to do something I did? Yeah. Was it the best thing to do? Don't know. But we all have opportunities to build relationships and to show leadership from time to time. Yeah. One thing I'll, I'll end up the leadership thing on, if, if I may, is um, a lot of my work, i do one-to-one coaching days with C-suite individuals at the beginning of a change program. And it's often the way I, I get to do a change program because I often don't write me a huge check to do a change program over, over a year or two. I have to win my spurs. But I often do it by doing a, a coaching on the individual leaders. I've developed this way of working with one individual for, for a day, an eight to nine hour day. And I remember doing this with um, the CEO of a big multinational. He was knighted, Sir Christopher Sansa. Um, the purpose of the days he wanted to be more effective at influencing the MDs of the, the CEOs rather of the, the, the various subsidiary companies throughout Europe. Um, He was um, in his early 60s, um, knighted, as I say. I got a great MBA, a great degree from Oxford. Um, We did the coaching day in the company Grace and Favour apartment in Mayfair. Wow. And in lunch break, he showed me his Jaguar collection in the basement garage, you know, six Jags. So I'm telling you all this background because to all intents and purposes, this guy had made it, you know. He was a leader. Mm. and the session was quite deep. I even took him into childhood experiences, did a bit of emotional regression work, really helping him unpick his own uh, things to work on as well as his strengths, and we started to talk about his insecurities and his vulnerabilities and things he'd never really talked to anyone about. And about halfway through the session I felt I'd earned enough Trust pose the question, so Chris, what's your biggest fear? And he smiled and wistfully looked at the carpet and he said, oh, that's easy. My biggest fear is one day I'll get found out. Okay, wow. And I kind of knew what he was saying and and I pushed it a bit further and I went, found out for what? He said, found out this kid in short trousers got this far. And, you know, the, the, there's, a, there's a birthday card that somebody sent me years ago, uh, which I've framed and I've stuck on my office wall here. And it's just a quote from the author, uh, Margaret Atwood, you know, okay. did Handmaid's Tale. And i just read it. It says, I believe that everyone else my age is an adult, where I am merely in disguise.
1: That is such a profound um declaration of imposter syndrome. Yeah. That a lot of people can resonate with, including Absolutely. myself. I've been there many, many times. <laughs> and,
2: and and what's what's often so easy to forget, Douglas, is that you know, when I worked in a company or, or even now when I go into companies and, and um people look up to me and they see they see me being Um, articulate hopefully and and, and very confident and, and able to put ideas together and now I consciously will show them my vulnerabilities I'll talk about my dyslexia I'll talk about times when I'm scared even now I'll talk about times when I don't know the answer and I encourage leaders to do the same because if my leader balances Ultimately, having the courage to make decisions, that's important. That's the kind of parent role of a leader. But if in so doing so also shows a degree of humanity and vulnerability, then it will not only endear those they're leading towards them, but it will also encourage those they're leading to offer their own ideas to the leaders, realizing that leaders haven't got all the answers because they haven't.
1: Excellent, uh, excellent point. Um, I think that leads on to you not know, that saying,
2: "I'll fake it till you make it." Yes, we're, as human beings, we're far worse an actor than we think we are. And exactly when we're faking it and thinking we're getting away with it, yeah. you know, you, mean you don't have to be a psychologist. So when you work with someone, you know, you share a desk with them or, or you share a team with them. If they're upset or or, or Annoyed, you can tell. You don't have to say anything. Yeah. You know, they, pour, they hump, yeah. they, they move, they breathe, they sigh. You know it. You know. You know. When, when your girlfriend or your partner is annoyed with you, do you know before she says anything? Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so when we think we're holding it all together and we're not showing it, it's not true. But the, the problem with with not saying it if what is coming across is ambiguous and we're not saying what's really going on then the people looking on will make up the story of what they think is going on with us and then we get politics yeah yeah so i i, st- <laughs> I started um
1: living it to our become it type philosophy whereby i i realized the more i faked anything it was tiring I'll go to, I'll come back from work and I wouldn't know why I'm tired. Then I realized maybe I'm tired because I spent the whole day, eight hours of my day, lying about liking something, lying about the clothes I'm wearing, lying about the narrative I'm telling people about myself. You know, then I started just living my own truth and finding comfort and and um, self-compassion. I actually started talking to that inner voice. And that led me to do even the, the the podcasting as a way of expressing and reaching out and connecting people who are of like minds and also to try and, and just change the narrative a little bit, allowing all of us to um, to be bolder in terms of our decision making and braver in terms of the choices that we make, you know, make sure that little voice is not ignored because my little voice, you know, it, it, I realize it is. It's a contradiction because my little voice is more powerful than my spoken voice. <laughs> yeah.
2: So I, I am to that. That's the same for me. I mean the, the one of the one of the life-changing events in, in my uh career but also in my personal development and I tend to do workshops and experiment with other people's ideas all of the time even now after 33 years of practicing change because I need to evolve, I need to change um, and go through the the discomfort of change if I'm to help people negotiate through their own change, discomforts. And one of the life-changing things I did um, started uh, about 15, no, more than that, 17, 18 years ago now, is a form of Buddhist meditation called Vipassana. Vipassana, V-I-P-A-S-S-A-N-A. It's the very stripped-down, Buddhist mind meditation that supposedly the Buddha discovered sitting under his tree, um, that enables you to stay in the present. And Vipassana is what mindfulness evolved into. So mindfulness comes from the principles of Vipassana. And uh, Vipassana is only taught in 10 day silent meditation courses. Um, So no talking, No eye contact, no phones, no computers, no reading or writing materials. And I was terrified. It sounded nuts to me. A friend of mine did it and got value from it, and I resisted doing it for about eight years. And then eventually, in 2003, I think it was, I decided to do it, Um, went to the meditation center near Hereford. Um, There's no Buddhas, no Sutras, none of the religiousification, if you like, of what became Buddhism? It was practicing literally little, noticing the voices in your head um, and noticing what goes on in your body. Those two things, I and mean, it takes a lot of discipline, 10 hours a day, to actually calm your mind down and get into your body. But it did. And I've done nine of those courses now, and I practice. Uh, the meditation every morning because you never get there. It's like going to the gym and getting fit. You know, you don't suddenly say, oh, now "I'm now fit" and start going to the gym. So it's become a practice that I, that I integrate um, into my into my work into my life. The thing I really learned from it is the kind of practical um, dynamics or laws, if you like, to do with emotions and how they relate to what we now call emotional energy. Uh, and particularly how that relates to to energy that we, we kind of learned about in, in school boy and girl science, you know, thinking about the basic laws of of Newton, Newtonian science, you know, that things like every action has an opposite and equal reaction. Yes. You know, right, yeah. What you resist persists. So we know that's true in in the laws of, of, of gravity and, and, and physics. And it dawned on me that actually that's true emotionally. If I'm feeling an emotion, particularly one I don't like, it doesn't tend to be the case with with happiness because, you know, we all like happiness. But, of course, Happiness gives way. You can't feel one emotion all the time. You go from one to another. In of course of a day, you can go from boredom to fear to ecstasy to happiness to joy mm. to, to anger to you know, it all goes. It all goes. And we, as we grow up, we're almost kind of conditioned to, to bottom it all out. And of course that's where the problem becomes, because the amount of energy it takes to suppress, say, anger or fear is gotta be equal and opposite to um, end up with the apparent of stasis, the apparent feeling of level. But of course it isn't level, because if I try and pour energy into stopping me feeling something I don't like, as you said earlier, that makes me tired. Yeah, yeah. Or I get a headache. And a lot of correlations now too with suppressed energy, emotional energy, and, and forms of, of illness, correlations between heart disease and cancer, et cetera. Another Newtonian law of, of, uh, of physics is energy will take the path of least resistance. resistance yeah. Yeah? Gravity always finds its own level. Electricity or lightning goes to ground. And so how does that relate to my emotional energy? Well, if my emotions, if I try and squash or suppress my emotional energy coming out of my voice, I'll take it out on the car. I'll take it out on the printer and it doesn't work. Yeah. I'll kick the cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <please> <laughs> you know what I mean? I love lovely a Northern answer. expression. The truth will out, so the sp- saying goes. If you block the spout of a kettle, it will blow the lid off. Yeah. So if you don't say what's going on with you, it's going to come out anyway. It's going to leak. Yeah. And of course, as I said earlier, if it leaks through sarcasm or it leaks through huffs and puffs or it leaks through body language, People pick up on it, but it's not clean. It's not as direct Mm. saying Mm. something about it. So that leads us to, to, and this is what the the meditation course taught me, if I can't disappear negative emotions, because I can't, if I feel them, I feel them. I can try and bury them. I can try and suppress them. But the only way I can use that third Newtonian law of physics, which is to transform energy. yeah, You can't create or destroy energy, you can only destroy it, uh, transform it from one state to another. So the amount of kinetic energy in a piece of paper can be transformed into light, heat and particles if I set fire to it, but the collective energy in the smoke heat, light, and particles, is exactly the same as the latent energy in a piece of paper. So I cannot disappear the energy in my anger, but through getting more used to the discomfort of feeling it and finding ways to verbally express it appropriately, I might be able to transform anger into passion. Yeah. If you think about yeah. it, it was like a wafer thin. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I remember seeing um, a recording of uh, Dr. Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King's famous speech, you know, I Have a Dream speech. Yeah. And it always brings me to tears to start with. But secondly, was he, was he angry? Was he passionate? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think actually it was directed anger. It was passion. It it wasn't confrontational, but it was, you knew, he lived it. You know, it was real, but he expressed, what he did is he turned anger, which is fear of being out of control. He didn't suddenly feel in control. He didn't, but it's not that he didn't feel those things. He felt them. He felt fear. He felt anger. He felt helplessness. He felt that we all feel these things, but rather than become a victim of them and rather than pretending they weren't there, he almost embraced them and said, I'm going to feel this. Mm. I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to feel this anger. I'm going to, and I'm going to turn it into something. I'm going to turn the energy because that's what it is. Anger's a label. I'm going to turn this energy pulsing through my body. Notice my crop brain saying "Get out of here and don't do anything or attack." Notice that. Thanks, thank my mind for sharing. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm going to exercise my choice. Yeah, and do something positive with it.
1: Yeah, and that is an excellent example um, whereby anger can be used many times with directed transforming the um the the energy into a, a, a state that will lift your consciousness, conscious level up yeah. from, because sometimes you could wallow in because some, at some point you have to move, say for example, you're at the state of um sorrow or grief. At some point you have to get angry enough to say enough is enough. Move out yeah. of that state. If you're depressed at some point, you get to the point whereby you got to say mm, enough stuff. When I lapse in terms of my gym discipline, I have to first get, To the point whereby, oh my God, I'm such a donkey, I need to go to to the gym, then I can move it. But it's when we don't, when we transform it negatively inwardly on ourselves, then it becomes a far
2: more dangerous. um, It does. It it actually reminds me of, um, you mentioned before we we turned the recording on that my previous career for about 10 years in my 20s uh, was as a professional actor. And um, I can remember probably my first or second theatre job, I was waiting in the wings, waiting to go on. And the level of fear I had, which I'd always had, um, and most actors will tell you, that it never goes. You know, so this whole notion of trying to get rid of feelings, you, you get a very bad performance if an actor isn't energised, and that's the word I want to leave us with, It's energised. We put labels of negative energy on it, fear, anger, upset, grief, hatred, whatever. They're all machinations of energy, Mm. Um, but that's what it is, and energy fuels life. So as this terrified young actor waiting in the wings, and I wanted to be sick, and I turned to this seasoned old actor behind me who was about to go on stage with me and, and in, in the gap before we went on I turned to him and said does this feeling of terror ever go away and I can remember he put his hand on my shoulder and smiled and he said go away boy what on earth would you want to go away for it's your fuel yeah. you'll never be completely comfortable with it but you'll learn to embrace it because without it, you'll be a shit actor. <laughs> Sorry to use a slightly
1: dodgy word, but no, that's the excellent story, and it's a good one to actually um, um, transition to to like the closing um, comments with really, you. Because I've sure. had a great, great time. There's so much um, breadth and depth to this conversation that a lot of change leaders, I say that loosely, transformation leaders, I say that loosely, because. Only after you've had a conversation and listened to conversations such as this from yourselves, Philip, that you understand there are a lot of deficits and where that impacts on a change management program is you might get the uptake on Go Live, but you do not get the irritative um, um, development of your solution. Whereby if you look at big brands such, such as Apple, you've got people that Follow the, the product way and over beyond its technical um, capabilities so that all the, um, the developments, all the iterations of that software actually mean something, you see. So, um, yeah, I've had a fantastic time listening to you. I'm, I'm fully inspired. And
2: so how can people get hold of you? Um, my name's fairly unusual. So if you put Philip Cox Hines, that's C-R-X hyphen H-Y-N-D into Google, you tend to get me. Uh, my company name is Harley hyphen Young. So if you put Harley hyphen Young, if you miss out the hyphen, you get a, a grunge band in California. <laughs> so if you stick in the hyphen, harleyhyphenyoung.co.uk, you'll get my website. Sure, and also I would like, like you to promote your book. Um,
1: I'm seeing it on your screen now, The Mindfulness... Mindfulness and the Art of Change by Choice, Radical Leadership for Managing Change by Philip Cox Hind. And I think that is, I've ordered the I've ordered book right now on Amazon as we were talking, I was clicking
2: away. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, um, the first half of the book is is on the kind of psychology of change both for ordinary human beings as well as for leaders and managers. And the second half is how we brought about change um, and how we blended not just through engagement, how we blended the cultural change, but with practical changes of process. So I do process mapping. I do strategic change. I do software change. Um, And they have to happen side by side, you know, software, human software, and um, the hardware of business process and systems has to happen hand in hand, but it all starts with engagement and leadership. Excellent, excellent stuff. So
1: Philip, thank you very much for your time. And hopefully we'll do some more projects in the future in engagement. And um, anybody listen to this, You know, we'd like you to engage, post your comments. And don't worry if you didn't catch some of the, um, the, the links that, um, Phillips was, um, talking about, everything's going to be in the show notes. So just relax and, um, tune in for the next show. Take care guys. Have a great week.
0: Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out MikeDropClub.com and get the show notes and useful links. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't just live life, make life boom.